This is the Obscurity to Authority Podcast with your host, Darren Cabral. I'm here today with my guest. Um, he is the, I guess the correct word would be to say um, for Equium, that would be the managing director and broker, correct? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Awesome. So Navaz is the managing director and broker of Equium Group, which is a very large real estate services company. Um, of course, me being in the real estate industry, I had to reach out. I really want to learn more about what you guys got going on. Um, it's not every day that we get the opportunity to speak to somebody like this that's been this successful in that area. Um, and so I'm trying to shed more light on people like you and businesses like this, because there's a lot of people that are interested in this. There's a lot of people going this direction. So thanks again so much for taking the time to do this with us. And without further ado, I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, like I'll start off, yeah, like I said, my name is Avaz Anji. I, you know, we started Equium, I don't know, in 2011 as, you know, what a lot of people do, right? Like you, you buy some rentals, you're trying to get some investment income, trying to get that passive income. And, um, you know, you start with you know, one rental, two rentals, and then, you know, it, it escalates from there as you get more creative and <clears throat> get into joint, joint ventures. And, you know, and we, and we kept growing that side of the business. And, you know, we just, to be completely honest, like we just couldn't find the scale that I was looking for. I was looking for, you know, much bigger than what we could do. You know, I think in our best year, we might've done four or five BRR properties, which is like you buy it, you renovate it, you refinance to you get your money back and you go again. And I think we did like three simultaneously, five at once. I think that was like, and we were stretched, like stretched for cash, stretched for contractors, like and so it just seemed like there was, there's a lot of gaps in where I wanted to get to versus uh, what this was giving me. And so, you know, the nice thing that was getting built on the side of, you know, building all these properties and getting these joint ventures together was we were picking up management contracts, right? So we were managing on behalf of our joint ventures. We were managing on behalf of our partners. And then, you know, I was working in property management on my own as my day job, right? So I was like, well, I'm managing property on behalf of, you know, institutions is a day job and then I'm managing property on behalf of my joint ventures and myself in my side hustle. Right. So eventually, uh, you know, I went off on my own and it really, it, what, it, what happened was the oil downturn hit us, right? Like it's October 31, 2014 is my last day of work. I'm happily leaving with my massive portfolio of rentals at the time seemed so big. And, you know, I, we got hit by a bus, right? Like literally rent, tried up to zero, right? Like we, our cash flows, like I was super reliant on the cash flows pulling in for my properties. I was super reliant on the planned commissions because we were buying at a, like a fairly good clip by then. By, you know, in 2013, 14, I was buying like a property almost a month. And um, whether it was like helping a partner buy it or buying it in our own name or buying some sort of land development, like we were buying property like crazy. And so like I factored it all in, I was like, okay, I'm making this much in cash flow per door, about 500 bucks a door in cash flow. And, you know, I'm buying a property a month. I'm looking at this, I'm making way more in my side hustle than at my day job. So I might as well leave my day job. Like, why would I keep working here when I could just grow this thing? And yeah, like a freight train, the market hit me. And it's like literally the, the first day of the oil downturn is my first day of doing this. And so within, I don't know, within under a year, all of our cash flow dried up completely. We weren't in a position to buy because you know, a lot of uncertainty in the market and all the cash flow is gone. So now it's like, really, I had barely any income in cash. And luckily, my wife has a fairly good job to help sustain this silly idea of mine at the time. And so 
you know, I survived, we survived. It took, it took some time, but you know, the interesting thing was the, the thing that really saved us was the fact that we had property management contracts. Like I gave my notice in my day job and, you know, one of my institutional clients at my day job was like, well, you know, you're leaving, you know, when you're going to start your own management company, do you want to submit a bid? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So they were like a multi-billion dollar client. So I, I submitted a bid and I ended up taking that client with me. And that contract pretty much was the buffer that stopped me from pretty much going under at the time. And so between, you know, little, bit, little by little stabilizing my real estate portfolio and then growing the property management side, we kind of stabilized by, I'd say, 2016, 2017, uh, kind of stemmed the tide of like literally, you know, no paycheck, going to go under, can't make payroll, don't know how I pay some of the people that work here, right? <laughs> It, it, it was it was touch and go for a while, and then you know we just kept growing that property management side, growing the property management side, and then you know we got uh, some really large op- opportunities using you know that massive client to bid on really large scale condo buildings, and then we started doing that, and that took off, right? So we went from you know four or five employees to you know where we are sixty, all from that condo management contract, which was you know goes back to the fact that we were managing on behalf of this huge institution. We were able to say, although, yeah, we're a small company, only four or five employees, we have this multi-billion dollar client that has real estate all over the country. We manage their downtown high rise and we manage it to a really high level. We won a bunch of awards doing that. And we leverage that to win like large scale condo contracts, like some of the largest buildings in town. And so that's fueled our growth. And now we just are on that clip um, full time. Wow, that is incredible, man. It's funny because it's so many people's entrepreneurial stories tend to now start around um, these periods of economic downturn. It's funny how many people I talk to where they say they started something right before that happened and one of two things either happens. Either the downturn hits like in 08 and everyone gets killed, but then there's those few who kind of are scrappy and they survive and they hold on and they find a way through it and they end up building amazing businesses that scale incredibly over the next five, 10 years. Um, and I wonder if that speaks to their character or if it's just that downturn really affects their drive. Like, did you feel that? Cause that's what I'm curious in your case, when that hit, like what prevented you from just saying, Oh my God, never mind. I'm going back to my day job. That was more secure. I'm not doing this. Like, why did you choose to push through and keep going? Well, one of my, you know, like one of the things I, I recommend for anyone who wants to do stuff like this is like get mentorship, right? Like, so one of my mentors are building uh, like one of the fastest growing companies in Texas and, he was like, look, what's the worst case scenario? <clears throat> Are your job, like, is your job, is it hard for you to find a job in your industry? And no, like our, our industry is super stable. So it's like, I could just give up anytime and go get a job again. And so that was always a, in the background, like, okay, I'll take hits as hard as I can. And, but eventually if I, if I can't put it together, if I really can't and it's all we're done, like, yeah, okay, then I'll take a job back in, you know, in commercial property management for, you know, easy six figures. Like there, there's no question you can get that job with the experience I had before I started. So it's like, I have this backup plan in my pocket. I would like, and there's been a lot of times I was like, because I got offered a promotion not to leave my job back in October of 14. They were like, well, we, we want to make you, you know, uh, director of Western Canada. And I was like, that was a job that I was vying for building up for, for, I don't know, 10 years. Like I really wanted that job. And as I'm walking out the door, my boss quits. And then the VP of the region is like, hey, you know, this is, we want you for this job. And I'm like, I've spent years planning this exit, so I can't do it. 
So there was a lot of times between 14 and 17, I was like, maybe I should have just taken that job. <laughs> like, it would have been much, much easier for me, for sure. From a character's point, point of view, like, it, you know, I'd like to say and point inside and say um, that, yeah, it was our my character that got me through that period. But, like, I was scrappy from day one. I was scrappy at work, right? Like, people... You know, they knew they were like, I'd, I'd take on, you know, Shell, like I'd be debating with Shell about some negotiation point. And I'm just this like junior manager, but I was like, nope, we're right. Here's what the contract says. Like I was scrappy from day one. So that's not, that's for sure was in me, but like it, it was luck too, right? Like there's, there's, there's a lot of it is like, for sure, you're going to say, yeah, if you work 16 hours a day, seven days a week, you're going to get lucky for sure. But, you know, I'm sure there are people out there who've put in that kind of work and still failed. And so I, I can't downplay the fact that there were lucky situations, like like just circumstances, like that client, there was no, the, the there wasn't that much rapport built with them for them to give us this size of contract. Like it was just, some of it was like, we were doing a really good job. We were doing better than anyone else. Our team, great. And, you know, they were like, they didn't want to stick with the existing company. So there was an opportunity and we took it. But the fact that we got it, there's a little bit of luck there for sure. And uh, same with the condo thing. Like we said no to condo so many times, so many different buildings came and we were like, this isn't for us. We're commercial guys. It's a totally different business. We're looking at how the different businesses are structured. We're like, condo's not for us. We said no so many times. And then just randomly I'm having coffee with an insurance broker. He's like, oh, I'm on my condo board. He's like, you guys do a really good job of management you should bid on our building. He's like, we need a good manager. We're bidding right now. And it was a massive building. Like it was a five phase, like 800 unit building where it was like, we could really from there stage the rest of what we've done. And so again, that was just a coffee. Somebody set up for them to try to sell us insurance. <laughs> and it ended up ending up, ended up there. Right. So there's some of it's gotta be, you gotta have some luck for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely it's definitely luck that can get you in front of opportunities, but I think capturing them properly and making the most out of them, retaining them, building on them, growing them, leveraging them to more opportunities, that's where kind of the operational skill comes into play. And I think a lot at the beginning, too, to your point, is having great mentors, people that can identify that stuff for you early on, which you might not really know how to make sense of or, or not might not know how to leverage properly, but having someone that can guide you and say, no, that's where you got to go with this, or this is a yes, this is a no, this is what you, like having someone with that foresight before you have it is, is for sure a critical point. And I can attest to that. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was the same way. I mean, and it's funny with, you mentioned getting that job opportunity, right? In a critical point I've talked to now, um, I think we're coming on close to 40 entrepreneurs we've interviewed for this show. Um, and a good chunk of them have shared a very similar experience. And I've actually had a similar experience where at some critical point when it was, it would have been easier to just quit the business and take something really shiny that you always wanted. You have to make a decision. And I'm starting to wonder if those things come in front of us on purpose. Like it's like a polarizing moment where you have to choose and that choice is what solidifies the path. Cause I was the same when I was like, now I run uh, a couple of businesses. One of them is suit social, which is our digital marketing agency. That was my original business. I started it almost seven years ago and I was probably only boy, like 21. And I actually got offered a VP of sales position at a real estate company for almost $200,000 a year when the company was making 28,000. <laughs> and it was really tempting to go, I can work less and make 10 times more doing something I enjoy. And I love with a team that I knew. 
Um, and I literally, that was the most conflicting point in my history. And when you mentioned your point of getting an opportunity, I thought of that with me. And I was like, I remember sitting there talking to my family, talking to my friends. I'm like, I, I don't know if this business thinks like, I've been working on this all year. We made no money. We made like less than 30 grand. I'm being offered six figures. Like I have to take that. And literally someone's advice to me was exactly, I think it was actually my wife now. Um, at the time, she's my girlfriend. She's like, listen, you're young. There's always going to be a sales job. There's always going to be a marketing job. You can always go back and get a job, but you're only going to get so much time to build this business. Like once you start having kids and building a family, it's hard to take that risk and just drop things. So do it now. If it doesn't work, you can go back to it, right? If it does work, you have it. And so when you said that, it really spoke to me because I think you're not the only one. I think a lot of business owners have gone through that decision and the ones that have chosen to say, screw it, I'm just going to do this. This is the path I have to explore for myself so I don't regret it later. They end up doing really, really well. And obviously that was the case with you. Yeah, like there's been, <clears throat> it's been interesting because my business partner and I have now gotten plenty of, we don't make it super obvious that we own the company, right? So we get headhunted for jobs all the time and they're, they're more and more senior every year. So it's like, it's funny now. It's like, now we would never work for anyone, even though these are jobs that were so far out of our reach when we were working. And it's like, now it's like, I, I, I like, I don't like, even if my company was to fail tomorrow, I would just start something else. Like that seems interesting. Like there's no way that I could, I, I do want to just do what I feel like, like in a lot of ways I came uh, to work armed with like super good ideas. I sold them all the way in Toronto. VPs are buying into them. They'd buy them, they'd use them. And then, you know, I wouldn't get credit or get kiboshed by some other department in, in Toronto. Like, and this kept happening and I always came to play. I like, so it's like, if I have, solid ideas I want to explore, I'm not going to let some bureaucracy stop me. Right. So it's like, that's what happens in these companies. Um, and, and that's just not my game. Like it's, it's not for me anymore. So it's like, I have an idea. I may, it might take me a long time to explore it. Or it might take me a long time to develop it, but it's there. And I'm going to start putting some pieces towards that little by little. And, you know, through that we've, you know, we've just kind of almost like <clears throat> a web, like we just keep growing in every direction. Right. Like, so, I really, I want to continue this path for sure. Yeah, that's incredible. So yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, actually, you know what? I want to go back a couple steps because I had another question for you that I just remembered. Um, when you went back, because you mentioned you started in the real estate investing game. That was where this all kind of started. You started doing those burrs, those BRRs. I mean, we're all familiar with that. And I think you, you hit a wall that I think almost every small investor hits when they start doing those, which is, yeah, you hit three, four, five, six, and the bank starts going, uh-uh, we don't want to do any more of those. Um, and you start wondering, okay, either I got to take on, I know people who have taken to hundred of those birds, but they have like 35 JV partners and 35 bank accounts and 35. I'm like, how are you like, do like, that seems like a very inefficient way. I'd rather have one building with all the, like, and so it seems like everyone either hits that efficiency and pivots or they find some way to kind of put it together and go through it. I'm curious, like from the beginning, when you went to the property management, that was where you decided to go where you're saying, okay, this doesn't work. I want to go bigger. And property management was the route. Was that just a factor of that opportunity kind of presenting itself? Or did you make a conscious decision to do that versus larger multifamily or development deals or commercial? Like, like what was that decision process there in that transition? So, so unlike, I don't know, I don't know how other people think, but like me, I, I, I kind of test everything. So in 2017, when we started in the condo business in the condo game, we had commercial management. We had, you know, really strong asset, really strong clients. We has our, had our own residential JVs. There was about, I don't know, 60 of them um, with, yeah, like 25 partners and all that. 
And then we had, you know, about 60 of our own residential doors we managed on behalf of others. And then we took on this condo building. But at the same time, we had <clears throat> launched our own private mutual fund trust, um, which bought some multifamily. And we thought, you know, we didn't know that condo was going to go the direction condo was going to go. We didn't know what commercial was going to do. So we were like, okay, let's open this mutual fund trust and start raising money to big, buy bigger buildings. So we could control the, instead of one-off joint ventures, we bring a whole bunch of investors together with their registered funds. It, you know, we were able to accept RSPs, CFSAs, everything, and we'd buy bigger buildings. So that product was put together, tons of time and money, but it still operates. It's small because the rest of the business took off and so you couldn't focus on it. But like we were trying, like I was testing all this stuff at the same time, right? Like I, we have our own second mortgage fund uh, and we do private mortgages. We have this multifamily fund. We have the fund itself so we can launch on any product. So now we can launch a fund for expanding our business where we're going to acquire people with people's registered funds. So like we, we just continue to build and try things, right? Like even within the condo business, we're into a bunch of lines that our, comp our competition isn't because we're like, I think we can do that better. It's like, okay, let's pitch it to the board and like, okay, you know, right now you're paying this vendor to do this service. We think if we do it this way, we can do it more efficiently, more effectively, and we'll earn money and you'll get a better service. And they're like, oh, okay. And so <clears throat> we show them the business model. We try it out. We test it. What works? Okay. We try to roll out another building. So we're always just tweaking and here and there and here and there and here and there just to make it all work. So um, I think it was just, again, um, you know, we were set down a path with Condo and it, it worked really well. And yeah, we did spend a lot of time researching the model and pitching it and refining it and it's totally different from everyone else's in the market. So that I really like. But at the time, like if we hadn't got that condo opportunity, we probably would have just raised money and bought more buildings. That would have been the way, right? Like we had set up the process to do that too. Yeah, no, that, that's actually really, really smart because you're giving yourself these different pathways. So whichever one kind of takes off first is a thing you can focus more of your attention on and scale. So there's always something kind of cooking in the kitchen, more or less. That's awesome. So what is the equity? Like, I mean, you mentioned you have this kind of unique strategy, this unique way of doing things. What is kind of the Equium strategy? What makes you guys unique? What makes you guys different? I'd love to hear that. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of our like competition, similar size competition uh, in the condo business has like taken me out for lunch to be like, what are you guys doing? How's this working? So <clears throat> realistically, what it was is we were like me and the other couple guys who run Equium, the, the commercial condo business, we uh, were all working in institutional real estate. We were working at Oxford, S&C Lavin, Arcturus. And so we were managing, you know, large scale commercial real estate on behalf of, you know, the case, Oxford, all those, you know, big institutions. And so when you manage those properties, you know, your, your tenants are like Shell, ConocoPhillips, KPMG, like there's certain expectations of how services run from the client side. Then there's certain expectations from the owners of the building. Like they own 16 billion, $20 billion of assets in the city, in the country. They have a certain way they want it run. They have, you know, layers of institutional oversight that are watching how you do things, saying they want done things to do in a certain way. They have best practice across the country. <clears throat> best practices evolved in commercial real estate because of institutional investment for decades, right? So there's a certain way to manage commercial real estate that is not, it does not exist in condo. It does not exist in residential management at all. So when we got into commercial, took condo management on, we were like, we're going to run it like commercial. We're going to run everything like commercial. So we have, you know, I don't know how much experience you have working with condos, but, you know, you email your condo manager and they might get back to you. They might not, right? So we have 
set KPIs that our staff will respond to within four business hours. And if it's for a, a client like on the board, it's two business hours. And you know, if it's an emergency, we have staff on site, uh, like in-house. We're not reliant on, on contractors. In the industry, a lot of that competency has been handed off to the vendors, and then they rely on the vendors to you know, oversee the equipment, how are the boilers running, how are the chillers running. We, in commercial, the whole model is expected that that's delivered by the manager. The manager delivers the competence in capital project management. The manager delivers competence in overseeing the chillers, overseeing the boilers, overseeing the billing systems. We actually have to have, you know, class five, which is, I think there's a uh, similar thing in Ontario. I think it's called something different, but there's a licensing for the staff that actually come this equipment. And in commercial, you're expected to keep those people on staff and they provide that confidence to the manager to run the building properly rather than rely on vendors. In residential, that doesn't exist. So we brought that into condo. We were like, we want a certain level of, you know, response for the clients and we want a certain level of confidence in how we run the project whether it's, you know, whether we're, we're doing the roof or we're overseeing the boiler maintenance, whatever it is, that confidence level that's required in institutional management, we require it in our condo management. And so that differential has allowed us to grow. We don't really lose clients. You know, our retention rate's over 99.5%, you know, and we just continue to grow every year and more condos and more condos. Like, I, you know, I'm pitching every week uh, new clients. So, and all of our clients are word of mouth. Like we have no advertising, we have no really no social media. We have, uh, you know, we have we've really spent nothing on this. Again, I ask these clients when they ask us for a bit. It's like, how did you hear about us? Like, where do we come from? Like, oh, this person's on this board, or oh, I own a unit in this other building you manage, and it's really that's what it's been. Like all this growth has come from delivering this commercial model in condo, which none of the competition seems to want to do, and you know, delivering it well. So people keep calling us for business. Wow, that's awesome. So everything's been pretty much word of mouth fueling the growth right now. I mean, what are the projections for Equim? How big does this get? Where are you guys going? And how are you going to fuel that? Yeah, so realistically, like one building at a time, you know, the growth rate is going to slow down for sure. But we're still taking on a fair bit. Like we're probably, you know, 30, 40% bigger than we were six months ago. And we'll probably continue that pace. But, you know, the next Next play will obviously be, uh, it's a very fragmented industry. We'll probably start acquiring our competitors to, to continue the growth. Like the top end of it, like, I don't know, there's probably 250,000 condos in Calgary. I'd like to get like 20% market share, you know, sitting at two and a half to three. I, I got a ways to go, but, you know, I built that up in under five years. So I'll, I'll keep rocking. It's fine. Um, but we've just seen it's inefficient uh, to, you know, bid on buildings one at a time, 100, 200 units at a time. You know, maybe you close, maybe you don't whatever happens happens but it's faster to just buy the cash flows you know like you, you can see what the multiples are in the industry and the bigger the company the higher the multiples you're going to get some multiple inflation that way but yeah and again we have our own private mutual fund trust so we could raise registered funds to do what we want so you know there's a lot of opportunity we think in, in conglomerating the industry there's no real you know big local player like there is in toronto and vancouver but there isn't really in calgary like so there's, we feel like there's opportunity in conglomerating a lot of these smaller companies. That's really cool. And in terms of buildings and projects you guys will take on, just because we have, I know there's a lot of real estate investors that listen to this show. Is there a minimum size you take on in terms of number of units under management? Not anymore. Like, um, you know, we had, we had thought about setting some boundaries, but what, what we did is we set up different teams and different, different structures. So like we have, you know, 400, 500 square foot apartments, single one-offs, 
owner and we have, you know, 700 unit buildings. Wow. That's very interesting. Yeah. Cause you'd think someone at that scale, it'd be hard to build out. Um, it'd be hard to build out a team where it's like, you can actually manage those tiny properties without consuming too much time or resources and also those large ones. But you're saying you've separated that. So there's teams just for those smaller projects. There's teams for bigger projects. Wow. That's really, really smart. We, we awesome. didn't, we didn't really have a choice. Like if you look at it, we had a really sophisticated team managing the really big condo buildings and the commercial building, but we had our JVs, right? I have, you know, basement apartments under management, right? That are mine. So we had to keep both running properly. Interesting. Very cool. So, I mean, now that it, like you guys are out in, in this Calgary area, are you servicing just, you know, Calgary, the whole Alberta area, all of Canada? What does that look like for service region? Yeah, so we're, we're Southern Alberta. I think we have a building, uh, like mo the vast, vast majority is actually Calgary. And, you know, people ask me about expanding out of our market all the time. And I'm like, you know, we've had some, you know, in condo, there's like one of the main things that you deal with is like there's disasters that happen, right? Like, so I had a building where a senior citizen, you know, fell asleep after they put something on the stove and they burned a big part of the build, chunk of the building down. And, you know, the fire department had like three, four trucks out there. The board didn't know what's going on. The site staff, they were dealing with it, but the fire department wanted somebody more senior. So I was just like, I literally jumped in my car and drove down there. It was 10 minutes from our office, right? So it's like that having the ability to just get in the car and deal with it. I, I don't have in Edmonton or Vancouver or anywhere else. And because like I said, it's, we only have such a small segment of this market. I have room to grow. So I, I don't necessarily see that I need to get out of the market yet. Like there's lots of runway here left, but I like that ability. Like I know we had like a million dollar flood that destroyed a part of a building. I literally just went there Saturday morning, 9am. It was and a seven minute drive from my house up to my car. I'm like, let's go see what's going on. Like, you know, what has happened here? I can advise my client of what to do next. And sure, my staff can do that. But I feel like just getting hands on in these really big disaster situations, it, it makes a big difference. Like we had that, that building that was on fire. It was full of seniors. It was like, a, it's mainly seniors complex. I bet you the average age of the people in that building are like 75. And like the fire department had them all in city buses outside while they fought this fire. Now the fire's done and the building's soaking wet and like the entire parts of a floor are shut down. And the, the fire department said to me, he's like, if you guys can mount the amount of people required to go inspect every suite for damage and risk, we will give you guys the keys and let these people move, come back in today. So it's like, okay, I brought our whole team and we walked every single suite in the building with one of the board members. And it was awesome because we got all these seniors back in their building that afternoon. The massive fire, three fire trucks, 9 a.m. in the morning, pretty much everyone except for the like four or five really badly affected units were back in their units that afternoon because we mounted that, right? Like our, regular, our competition would not have been able to do that. And that's like, that is like where we shine, like where Equium is like above the clouds on everyone else. It's like, okay, fire department, you're telling me I can get everybody back in and they don't have to get hotels and shelters and all this nonsense. It's like, it's freaking February probably. It was cold. I'm like, let's do it. We like got six, seven people, walked every suite. Everyone was back in the building by like four o'clock, five o'clock. That's incredible. I mean, that whole, if I just took that last 60 seconds and we ran an ad in Calgary, that would get you your market share. <laughs> we need every condo board to hear <laughs> sure that story. Cause that's, yeah, you're right. A lot of people wouldn't do that. Like that's, that's above and beyond. Like how do you balance the like hands-on high level of service where you have that personal touch 
with scalability? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs are having a difficult time finding that balance where they're like, I don't want to be too hands-on because I don't want people to have to depend on just me. Like I want to grow this business, but I also don't want to be hands-off completely where I'm not giving that extraordinary level of service that you're talking about. How do you balance that or kind of reconcile in your mind? We try, like, you know, obviously scale is always an issue for everybody, right? Like you want to scale your business. Otherwise you're not going to get the returns you're looking for. So like we are tweaking and working on this continuously. Like, you know, we had another large, large flood um, at one of our buildings this weekend. And um, like some person just broke a tap while they're hammered and flooded a building. Can you imagine? But I, this time I didn't go to the building because the team that was dealing with it had sufficient backup that I was like, I'm not concerned. I called up the, 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 the client and I had a chat with them and I'm like, you know, this guy, this guy, this guy's on site. Um, everything's good. Everything under control. Do you need me to come down? They're like, Nope, these guys have got it. And last time that building had a massive flood, like 24 months ago, I was there personally because the team wasn't that strong. So you have to obviously develop your team to get better. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes you just need to go and deal with it yourself. Like, <laughs> you know, all the times, like you have to, obviously you want to work on scale. It's so important. Like, you know, I think you just had a post a couple, a couple of days ago talking about, you know, getting from seven figures to eight figures is so difficult for so many business owners. And I'll attest to that for sure. And it's because you're in the weeds a little bit, right? Like you need to step back and be able to see the bigger picture. And, um, but it, it sometimes getting involved, like, you know, I had a client, I don't know, 20 doors, which is tiny in our portfolio. And they were unhappy with their manager. And I literally just got in and I was like, I worked on it for maybe a few days and they're like completely stabilized now, but it's worth it because now hopefully we've got them long-term because we gave them that personal touch where we're like, okay, things are not going well here. I can see that. So why don't I just get involved, start organizing what's happening so that we're not losing the client because turning over clients is just not something we like to do. Yeah. A hundred percent. That's honestly great advice. Like this is why I love having people like you on the show to give that real advice, that real perspective. Um, I'm, I'm not all about those social media influencers and all these popular, like I want people in the weeds that are doing it and, and you're doing it because everything you just said is spot on. And it's very similar to how I run our marketing agency. Like, we have our account management teams, we have marketing coordinators, we have creative teams, but all our clients know that like when shit hits the fan, I'm usually the one that will appear. It's not because I don't trust them. It's like, I feel that there might need a little extra attention. Or I want them to know that they have a security because at the end of the day, I want that too. And that's kind of one of our benefits. I'm not an Ogilvy and Mather $40 billion agency. And so one of the, the benefits we want is say, listen, we're not too big that I can't get involved. And you have that expertise, you have that care, you have that support. Um, and I try to make sure, even if they don't see me for a few months, if something goes wrong, I'm there. Like I'm not running away from it. They don't feel isolated. They don't feel like they're left behind. Um, and it sounds like you do the same thing. So that's, that's amazing. Cause I do believe in that myself personally, and it served us very, very well. So I'm glad to see you kind of employing because a lot of those online gurus will, will say the opposite, you know, don't get involved. You got to scale. You got to build yourself out. It's like, yeah, at some point, but until you have a developed team that has that 15, 20, 30 years of history and you have these executives and you have people that can really come into their own until you're at that massive scale. There's people trying to do that with a six figure business, making hundred grand a year and build themselves out of it. Like you, you can't do that. Right. Do you agree? Yeah, no. Yeah. I, I completely agree. Like we talk about it all the time. Like in our strategy meetings, it's like, okay, we want scale. We want to grow. We want to take on more clients, but it's like <clears throat> the, the people who make, a, a real material difference in how we deliver our service versus the, our competition, those people are tough to scale, right? Like how do I provide more support 
for those people so that we can deliver our better than average product on a bigger audience, right? Like I, I, we look at this, we're looking at this all the time. There's certain key people that deliver, the way they deliver the service is better than the industry, better than the competition, but like they're going to be stretched, right? They're going to be working to meet that requirement. So like, how do we give them the resources, the tools so that they can do more or train more people to do what they do? Like, and that's, you know, we're always having those fits and starts, right? We took on a little too much and, in 2019, we did 300% growth in condo, and like, like we were, we were like, what, what do we do here? Like, we're trying to hire people with really good experience to just get them into the model, and hopefully, we can just plug them in. Like, that's not, that's not how we work, obviously. <laughs> so we had to, we had to throttle back a little bit in early 2020, and COVID was actually very good for us. We grew through COVID, but like, it gave us a, a like, we were able to pump the brakes a little bit while we figured out how to, you know go hard again and so you know we're back on that track yeah no that that's awesome and definitely COVID must have been challenging because more people were home in these apartments or working from home and so more issues and more things they notice and more things they break <laughs> I'm sure that was hectic for you too yeah no we actually did not have like like I said we're, we're really compared to our competitors like it's a tough industry for sure it's a very low margin there's a lot of um there's a lot of that. Oh, I'm having a problem with my battery here. Let me check my laptop cable. So yeah, there's a lot of our competitors are, you know, they, they, they might've noticed, but we didn't really like COVID was fine for us. Like, yeah. it, like it sucked and we had to make new processes, but business wise, the business did fine. Like the clients were, you know, we, they were no less or more, um, on our case than they would be on a regular basis, right? Um, so anyway, you know what? Why don't we kind of wrap up with one more little kind of segment I want to do because obviously you have a ton of experience in the real estate market in general. Um, you're in a very interesting market because I'm here in Ontario and a lot of Ontario investors with the crazy prices coming up around Toronto and the GTA, they're looking out that way. They're looking at Calgary. They're looking at Alberta. They're looking for opportunities. A lot of them that I talk to are unsure. Um, so whether they're an investor or they're just a business owner looking to get into some real estate, maybe they don't want to do it here. Let's talk about that Calgary market for a second. What are you seeing there? What are some of the opportunities? What are some of the things that people should know if they want to actually invest in, buy a building or buy a property in, in Calgary? You know, we, I really like the Calgary market, the, you know, and it, as much as it's not self-serving because I have rentals in Toronto, but, uh, the, um, the thing you have to realize is. Toronto's like I watching these markets for so long since you know going back to even 05 when I started buying rentals um I had a bunch of friends and investors in Toronto and they were buying there I don't see Calgary having the kind of uh kind of growth that you've seen in those markets like I see it for sure like growing and I for sure see an opportunity but seeing that thinking like a lot of Toronto people think that Calgary is going to be the next Toronto over the next 20, 30 years. Like I, I don't see that. Like, and you know, like I said, I bought in 05, I bought through all, through all of these periods and I've been involved in the market for the whole 17 years and maybe I'll miss the boat. Who knows? But I, I, I see it as a strong market in that the fundamentals are better here than people realize. And that's the thing to recognize. The fundamentals here have always been better than people realize, but the fundamentals in Texas have always been better than people realize in New York that doesn't make a bunch of people invest from Manhattan to, to Austin and Dallas, right? The fundamentals have always been better in both of those markets. Like I see a lot of similarities. Their tax rates are lower. They're way more 
business friendly. Uh, you know, their their regulations for tenancies are way less stringent. We don't have rent control. Rent control. You know, tenants have way less power in leases. There's no standard lease that you guys have in the Ontario Act. There's there's so many benefits of investing in this market. But like I said, that's the, all those benefits existed in Texas and have for decades, right? And that still only draws a certain crowd from California and New York, right? The same thing is here. There are so many benefits here to investing here. Like average weekly wages in Alberta have been the highest in the country for decades, like decades. And so if you have the highest weekly wages and you have the lowest taxes and you have one of the lowest real estate markets, like price-wise for a, a market this size, People can just make it work. We have so many people coming from Toronto. They're like, I can't make it work there. I can get a job for similar pay here. And my house cost is like a third. It's like, now it's like a third of your last little skyrocket he had out east. <laughs> now you can get the average house in Calgary for like a third of Toronto. It's crazy, right? So uh, people make it work here. It's, it's way more easy. It's way easier to make it work here. So I, I see that as like, especially with the in, in, immigration targets that the feds are trying to continue with the 400,000 a year, 500,000 a year, more and more people are going to put pressure on Toronto, Vancouver, and they're going to be like, I can't make this work. Like, it, it, I don't know how anyone lives there. I look at the applications I get for my rentals in Toronto. And I'm like, I don't know how you think you live there. You should come here where you can make it work because the amount of money you make, the amount you're planning to pay for rent in my place, it, it, it boggles my mind. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it either. I, I look at it all the time. I really don't. It's a shame because, yeah, it's, it's become almost impossible um, for someone to live in Toronto unless they're making an extraordinary amount of money. Like, because even if they want a tiny apartment, it's really expensive. And if you're making 40, 50 grand a year, I mean, you're, after taxes, you're putting 70, 80% of your income towards rent. And then what do you live on for the rest? Like, it's impossible. And we're seeing now even like um, in the more suburban areas, I don't know how familiar you are around Ontario, but like, you come up to like Vaughan, right, and Mississauga and all these areas um, and some of the suburbs around there too, super high end where you have detached homes that, yeah, they're, they're small, not small, but you're getting 2,500 square foot detached homes selling for $3 million, 2.2, 3.3. And the rents are like eight grand a month, nine grand a month, 10 grand a month. Like for a detached home, it's, it's crazy for the average person. Like that's just become not a reality here. So I'm not sure why people still try to pursue the dream um, here when they can go to those emerging markets, not really emerging markets, but um, less developed markets Solid. like Calgary, where there's still tons of opportunity, tons of wages, but they don't have to worry about this over competition in the housing market and over development that they have to compete with. Right. Yeah. Like for investors looking in Calgary, like you, there is good stability here. Like it bounces up and down a little bit, but you know, you, you get more likely to find a cash flowing asset that people will be able to pay rent on and will grow, you know, slowly, the slow, it's a slower road here. But to think that I'm going to go buy, you know, a, a suited house in Toronto for one, two, one, five and hope for a double it again. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I, but that's what we said in 06, right? Like, I remember who sold Sammy's injunction for 300K in 06, right? So who knew? It's crazy. It's, it, it, it is. It's, it's hard to believe when you're in it. Like we just, um, I mean, we saw all the time. So one of like my uh, the other business I'm involved in is actually family business, which is essentially an off market buying house company. We're just market a ton of local areas. We buy all these houses off market. Um, you know, we'll generate eight, 900 leads, whatever year and we close on a bunch of them. They, they get renovated, they get flipped. And just the progress you see in housing prices where there's one that I bought personally, because I was intending to move into it. We got a nice detached home in the Barrie, Ontario area just last year for like, literally, I think the off market price was like maybe 280. We put like 250 grand into it 
So you're call it 500 grand in. Six months later, I'm like, I can't stay here. I gotta sell this thing because it's listing for a million dollars in six months. Like from half a million dollars into a million dollars in six months, how on earth is that sustainable? The next six months, it's not gonna be worth two million. Or maybe it is, I don't know, but there's, it seems to me like illogical. Like you don't know, it's crazy. You never know, right? Like there's no, there's no way to say that Toronto is not going to grow more. Like there's no way to say it, especially if you're bringing in four or 500,000 people a year, they don't go to like Red Deer, right? Like <laughs> these people go, that's they true. go to Toronto, they go to Vancouver, like that's where they go. And so the pressure on prices, they don't, they really, I don't see how increasing interest rates is going to solve it right away. Like maybe if we're at six, eight, 10%, sure, maybe. But like, I remember my parents moved to Calgary in 92 from Toronto because prices were too high. They couldn't make it work. <laughs> so like, you know, the same story exists 30 years later. Yeah. I mean, my, I think the only solution either people can got to make a lot more money and that's going to go that way, but that's just going to push prices up further anyway. Um, or the government's got to get rid of as much red tape as they can and let entrepreneurs be entrepreneurs and develop new properties and new developments and new systems and sprawl. Um, and not make them run through 10,000 hoops where it becomes unprofitable to do so. Because I know even in Barrie, which is why I'm living now, which I love, there was a big push here by a couple of investors to start doing for, for residential. They were doing these like, um, I guess they're almost like, like coach suites. They're like, like a little small house in the back of the existing property, right? So they would duplex the main yeah. property and then build this little coach house in the back. And it's great because you're getting three units on one lot that used to have one, which would help. It would help if everyone started doing that with the prices. But the city kind of just started smacking it down. They started doing double development taxes and, and extra surcharges for this and surcharges for that and a uh, longer approval process. And then the guys are just like, we don't want to do it. It's not worth it anymore. And then we're back to no housing. Not and really. everyone's saying like, why can't we afford housing? It's like, well, in my opinion, entrepreneurship and, and capitalism in some ways solves a lot of our problems. If we let the creative people in our, in our, in our world run free and actually with some oversight, but work on these problems and, and work on creative solutions because if there's profit driving it, they'll figure it out. They'll find a way to make it make sense. And if it helps the economy in the long run, I'm a big believer in that. But I'm not sure how you approach it, but I think the Calgary market is definitely a, a big opportunity. Is there any particular asset classes or categories, like whether it's commercial or large multifamily or uh, single family homes, if I'm an investor here in Ontario, want to buy something there, anything you see as the biggest opportunity? So at one time, we had 2% of all the legal suites in town, like 2.5%. Um, this market did not appreciate legal suites at all. Right. And, you know, there was actually an imputed discount on some properties, like, because there's so many single family users that didn't want the rental income. Now it's starting to, the tide is starting to turn that, you know, suited rentals are getting a lot more attention. And, but that's, that's where I would go. Like I would buy a suited rental in the inner city and just let the land value increase while you collect the cash flow for sure. Like if you can afford to do multi, like there's not a lot of people who are going to go put 300, 500 K down to buy a multifamily building. Uh, it's a different, it's a different ball game, different investor type, but yeah, there's, there's opportunity in that. But at the same time with all the institutional money that's gone into multifamily development for purpose built rental, like you have new competition that you have never thought of before, right? Like you go buy an inner city, six plaques, 12 plaques, whatever. And down the street, you know, Bentall has gone and built, you know, a 200 unit high rise rental building purpose built. What's that going to do to your rents, right? Like they have condo amenities in the rental buildings now. So tens of thousands of those units have been built in the inner city and more are being built. Like I don't know how many developers I've met with that are talking and are building multifamily rental and they're building it for themselves or for their partners or to flip to investors, whatever. They're not building condos. So like those people are your competition 
if you're trying to rent a small building. Sweetie duplex, I get the land. I don't have to compete with that stuff. That's my happy place. If I was still buying rentals, that's what I would be. I'd continue to buy suite duplexes all day long, every day, twice on Sunday. That's, that's interesting to know. Yeah, I think one of the big holdbacks for me and others was, you know, we, we wouldn't know if there was some in the area we could trust to manage that if they started buying a portfolio of property. But you've just solved that problem. Now we know who we can call. We, we actually had a, a real estate team out of Toronto that sold 60 units uh, out of this developer's inventory. And, then, and they just called us and said, hey, we want to make an operating agreement with you to give our clients, you know, specialty pricing. If they call you from us from the sale of these uh, pre-built industrial houses, absolutely. We'll make it work. Like we, we're here to grow. Like we'll do deals. We'll look out for our clients. You know, and every, anyone who, you know, knows us, knows we've been managing our own rentals for, you know, 17 years now. So, like, and we still have our own rentals mixed into the portfolio. So like we are landlords and we look out for our rentals, right? Yeah, that that's awesome. It's something I'm definitely going to consider too, because I mean, I'm also looking obviously in the U.S. now. Florida is attractive. Texas is attractive. Um, but Calgary has been on my mind. I've had a couple of people bring it up to me. I know some people doing some things over there too. So I think me and a lot of other Ontario investors are, are looking in that direction as well. Um, so I appreciate all that insight because that's very helpful and it's something that we'll have to consider more closely. But anyway, any final notes kind of before we close up here? Because I, th- I don't want to you know, take up all your time. I appreciate you already giving us this much. But anything else you want to add before we kind of close out? Yeah, before we close out, I do want to mention, like, we've looked at Texas a lot of times. I really like that place. I really like it for multifamily investment. Like, the further costs are way less than they are here. Debt's way easier to get. Cap rates are higher. And, you know, we watched the growth since 2015, 2011. So maybe we missed the boat. I don't know. But I really like Dallas as a multifamily investment product for sure. Uh, closing thoughts, like, you know, I, I'm glad there are people like you out there that are, you know, talking to investors talking to business owners because that perspective like you know i i listened to a whole bunch of your podcasts after you reached out because i wanted to know what it was awesome. all about and like this is super insightful right? like and it's great that you're out there you know getting those insights from people because like that's the real i feel like the differential like the game changer was you know meeting with ceos meeting with mentors meeting with people who are doing it in different industries and seeing their perspectives and trying to bring that into your model. That's really been the game changer. Like now I spend all my time with other business owners, other people doing big things, like trying to see what are they doing differently? What can I bring in? What can I learn? What did you do in this situation? Just like having this massive brain trust that you can rely on. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I kind of like what we do. I mean, it's funny because I haven't figured out a way to like directly monetize this. Like the podcast is a pure passion project. I love doing it. I love connecting with people like you. Um, and sharing these stories and, and giving it out and helping people. I have no way to monetize it. We don't make any money from doing this. It's purely passion. But I think the way that I have monetized it, you know, quote unquote, has been all the great connections we've made, all these great people that I can call, that I can talk to, the relationships that have come out of it um, have been incredible. And hopefully for the people listening, it's the mentorship they're getting as well. It's like, even when I help them, like I'll have people come back to me later saying they started a business, but they heard a bunch of these podcasts and they were able to implement a bunch of these things they learned from the show and now they're a friend for life or their relationship they have. So it's worked out in that sense. So I enjoy doing it and I'm very grateful for guests like yourself taking the time to actually contribute and come on these shows as well. No, I really appreciate it. Like um, it's, um, it's interesting. Like people always think of mentorship as somebody, you know, another thought I could leave you is people always think of mentorship as somebody bigger than you doing bigger things, but it's almost like you just want to talk to other business owners, people dealing with the same problems, even if they're not the same scale as you, even if they're smaller, you know, having that, those, 
those people, like the, the way that they think is different from how the system operates and using their insights and using their mindsets and using their like little niches and tricks and thought process to get yourself ahead, you can never lose. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the business owner community is kind of a, a breed in and of itself. And you just, you just know it when you talk to somebody, it's, it's a different conversation. It's a different thought process. Like you say, it's a different way of viewing the world. And in any way, it's always refreshing. Um, so I, I definitely enjoy it. And hopefully we'll get a chance as well to connect uh, further at some point in the future. Maybe I'll even come out there to Calgary one day and who knows, maybe we'll have some property out there. But in the meantime, where can people connect with you if they want to follow along or just check out what you're doing? Uh, most of the time now, now we're trying to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more social. So we're trying to post our stuff on LinkedIn and see so people know what we're up to. Like a lot of that stuff, nobody knows about all the cool things that we've done and we do. We're just not out there talking about it. So LinkedIn for sure. Like I'll connect with anyone, meet up with anyone for coffee or call or chat. I'm always open because, you know, this is how you, you know, we started a condo business just based on a coffee, right? We, um, you have to you have to make the time to meet people, talk to people, see what they're all about. That's awesome. Well, again, I appreciate that time, Nilaz. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, learning from you, sharing. Um, and I know our audience will appreciate it as well. So thanks so much for taking the time. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much, Jim. We'll talk soon.